Right, so as I shared with you on Wednesday, there have been, since I started this book, there have been two passages that I've been afraid of. Uh, and this is, in fact, one of the hardest passages in the whole Bible to untangle. I took on the man of sin in Second Thessalonians for you, uh, and this is tougher. Uh, now, for example, right, it's, it's tricky to untangle some of the things. Let me, let me give you an example right from the outset of, of something that we, that I've had to, to wrestle with. So, uh, in verse 4, the ESV makes this seem very straightforward. But a little literal rendering of, of the Greek would be something like, every husband praying or prophesying, having against a head, dishonors his head. Now, it's, it's very hard to know what a phrase like having against or, or having down a head means. Uh, and so translators surmise that it refers either to a man with long hair down his head or a covering against his head. Scholars fill in the blank with inferences from other parts of the passage. Uh, but there's a stack of instances like that throughout these verses. No further, there's not really a consensus across the centuries about the major point or the major application here. Paul himself omitted his typical, very clear, logical connectors, leaving a rather winding and an almost seemingly ad hoc argument that lacked his typical vigor for an issue, which makes it complicated for us to trace the point. There's a number of viable interpretations here. And, I mean, I feel that I have to be humble as I come to a passage like this and and admit that I'm grappling with a text that leaves me very aware, very aware that Scripture is my master and I have not mastered it. But what do we do in situations like that? If something's confusing, if something's hard... We submit ourselves in trust to God's word to be instructed best we can, knowing that God is incomprehensible and knowing that it's good for us to be stretched and left in wonder at times, that the Bible is inexhaustible. We come to a passage, even even one that has a complicated structure and argument, ready to be changed. And I think that's important here. I came to this passage ready to have my opinions upheaved. And they were, more than once. (laughs) So our best posture is to expect God's word to mold our minds and direct our lives. So in 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16, we have the issue about propriety and Christians not thinking clearly about how to relate Christian freedom to cultural Norms, as has often been a, repre- a repeated refrain since chapter 5, some uh, in Corinth could not quite grasp that being a Christian does not free you from every obligation to live well before God or for our neighbor. So the main, main point here as we dive into these verses is that we should make every effort to maintain Christian modesty and propriety in our relationships. We should maintain 
every effort, sorry, we should make every effort to maintain Christian modesty in our relationships. Now, the first thing that we're going to think about here, so our first point is four foundational factors. So we've got four aspects of this text that I just want to get before us as our starting point into this passage. So four foundational factors. When we have a section of Scripture that has a life of its own in in church or in modern history in particular, we have to be careful because we can be so eager to answer the question we already have that we forget to ask what question the text answers. So four factors help us get our hands around this text with better fixing. So the first thing is that although they've ceased now, charismatic gifts were active during the New Testament period. We get kind of nervous about this sometimes, I think, when we get to these passages, but we shouldn't. God clearly enabled people to prophesy, which I take as speaking supernatural revelation, and to speak in tongues, for example, which we'll get to in the book. And so gifts were active in this time, and this passage addresses the circumstances of prophesying and praying. Now second, so that's the first thing. Gifts were active. Simple point. Second, this passage is not about public worship, right? which, which is crucial for working out how to apply this text today. How do we know that? How do we know it's not about public worship? Well, there's a couple of things. Okay, so the first one is that this passage nowhere mentions public worship. It mentions only husbands and wives. Okay, so even though the ESV that we read alternates between a man and a husband, or a woman and a wife, there are only two Greek words throughout the whole passage, one masculine and one feminine, and they can be translated man and woman or husband and wife, but for clarity, we should pick one in such a short, condensed section. And I think the more likely that this is talking about a husband and a wife, and we should read it that way throughout. So this is an issue in marriage, not public worship, the marital relationship. Now how else? Is that is that the only thing that suggests that to us? No, it's not. How else do we know that this is not about public worship? Well, I think this is this is certainly more definitive. Cle- clearly Paul was discussing what husbands and wives should wear while praying and prophesying. Now, there were prophetesses, female prophets, in Scripture. Examples, Miriam, Exodus 15, Deborah, Judges 4, Anna, Luke 2. There were women who prophesied. But Paul, when he explicitly addressed public worship later in this book, in chapter 14, including a discussion of prophecy, he wrote in verses 33 and Therefore, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. 
And he's talking about things including prophecy. So, although chapter 11 endorses wives praying and prophesying, chapter 14 forbids them from doing so in public worship. If scripture is consistent with itself, which I, as you know, I believe it is, then Paul's discussion in chapter 11 cannot be about public worship. It concerns praying and prophesying in some marital context outside public worship. Our third factor, third factor, is that Paul's primary point, and I think this is more helpful as we get to grips with the whole section of we're considering, Paul's primary point concerned traditions and headship with only an application to this issue of head coverings. So verses 2 and 3, right? If we, if we turn our eyes to the text, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of... So this is, this is his departure from as he as he thinks about I'm commending you for praying for me and for keeping traditions and the first thing I think about that I want to commend you for is is <clears throat> excuse me understanding that the head of every man is Christ the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God so that that right there is Paul's main focus in this passage. Namely, there are apostolic traditions that should be maintained, some of them pertaining to the leadership role the husband has in marriage. Yet this leadership that a husband exercises is like Christ's headship over the husband. Christ is the loving redeemer, the self-sacrificial leader who works for the good of others. And so that ties right into what he had just said. Work not only for your own interests, but consider your neighbor. When Paul wrote here that God is the head of Christ, he means specifically the Son's incarnate mission, not his eternal identity as God the Son. The Father is not in charge of the Son in the Godhead. Right? Both are equally God. God cannot obey. God does not obey. God is in charge. Whether that be God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit. So, the Son obeyed the Father during the incarnation to obey on our behalf and secure our redemption. That then models the servant leader of husband's need. So there's, there's our third thing that we see. Paul's main focus is on this headship issue. Fourth and final controlling factor for us to help get a, a grasp on, on this text is in verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And Paul's closing point here, right, referred to the whole discussion about his application to the Corinthians about head coverings. 
He, it's a concession though. Do you see that? If anyone is inclined to be contentious, well, we don't practice this, nor do the churches of God. And so if someone wants to argue against Paul's application about head coverings, he just explicitly admits that the apostles and the other churches don't observe the same practice. This is something for Corinth. Now some some want to get around that by claiming that Paul means that the churches do not practice being contentious. But... That doesn't, that doesn't do much for the sentence's purpose in, in the argument. I mean, that's clear. He's already addressed that earlier, for one. And Paul is not afraid of, Paul was from a different culture than the one in which we live and was not afraid to be very direct, uh, and, and put things right on the nose. And so that's a fair, this would be a fairly passive way for him to make that point. He has earlier asserted his authority for them to do certain things, and he would just do so here again. So, Paul, the point is, that claim doesn't make much sense of this verse. So Paul explicitly noted that his application, which was meant to support the, the binding principle about proper order in marriage, well, his application is culturally conditioned for the Corinthians, not just for his time, not just for his time, but for their city and their culture. I didn't expect to come to that. I will admit to you, I did not expect to come to that conclusion as I dove into this passage. But there you have it. Uh, I think Paul explicitly tied this topic to a very culturally conditioned set of issues. So there's our, our four controlling factors. Gifts were active, uh, right? It's not about public worship. The main issue is headship and marriage. And then there's a big concession about the custom of the churches at the end. Now, our second point. What about this big application in the middle? So our second point is untangling Paul's application. Untangling, untangling Paul's application. With with our four factors in mind, framing this passage, how do we understand this application about head coverings, which is specifically important for the Corinthians? Mainly, there are proper ways for husbands and wives to demonstrate their relationship and maintain propriety. There are proper ways for husbands and wives to demonstrate their relationship and maintain propriety. And that's worth repeating because that's the principle that remains true today, as Paul will help us see. Okay, so, a contextual factor that we need to have before us for verses 4 to 7 concerns the, the cultural significance of hairstyles and head coverings. So, what's going on is this whole thing about um, head coverings and, and shaved heads. What's, what's happening there? Women convicted of adultery in the public sphere, when that, that was a triable offense, women convicted of adultery had their heads shaved to shame them publicly. 
explaining Paul's position why shaved and short hair for women uh, was shameful. Not in itself, but because of what it meant uh, for them. On the other hand, prostitutes in Corinth, right? Adam shared with us some about the significance of that in Corinth this morning. Prostitutes were often identified by long flowing hairstyles that sort of marked them out. Paul's point was that for a Christian to present themselves provocatively is as shameful as being publicly identified as an adulterer. So that's that's kind of what's at stake here. And we see the issue did concern something about hairstyles because verse 15, God gave women hair for a covering, namely the appropriately presented hairstyle served as a need as that needed covering for praying and prophesying. Men should then not cover their heads specifically with a woman's haircut. Verse 4, that's one of the ways to take this, because, because that would dishonor him. And some, we gather from verses 4 to 7, that the way to demonstrate our, our proper roles within our marriages is by not crossing the boundaries of presenting yourself as the other sex. Right? And, and we be mindful of how we present ourselves, especially while practicing our faith. It's not good for a married lady, or a single lady, to appear like a prostitute while praying with her husband, or in any other context, or praying anywhere, right? Nor for a man to present himself in woman's fashion. Verses which lands right in our time and place, doesn't it? We we hardly need to reach for applications there. Verses 8 to 12 contain this application's next stage. A wife is a husband's glory, right? The crown of his life. Not his servant, not his subordinate, his glory. Which informs how we think about headship. The one who has headship, the one over whom he has headship, if over is the right way to put it, well, they are his glory. God made man first, and yet man was not complete without woman. Husbands and wives are not independent from one another, but joined together. Men are born from women, now, verse 12, and we all receive everything from God. So we are back to loving Christ-like leadership in the home. Verse 10. Let's think about this. That That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. Paul, Paul had said, just, just prior to this, that, that the wife is the glory of her husband which means something for men's hair and head coverings. That the first husband, Adam, was created before the 
The first wife, Eve, entails something about women's head coverings too. Wives should have a sign of authority while prophesying or praying because of the angels. What, yeah, how do the angels ground that point? No one knows at the end of the day. If, if, if someone tells you that they understand this point, they are wrong. <laughs> there, there's no agreement on how that point follows. Not, not that it doesn't follow, but we don't understand it. There's an unspoken understanding of what, of the angelic function that, of which we're no longer aware. And so, what do we do? We sit with the mystery that this premise was understood to the first hearers, but now is unknown to us. And we try to gather our principles the best we can. So, the application then is that we be careful to keep God's created order in marriage, minding what our various actions and even self-presentation would suggest to our culture about our relationship and personal character. That's what we can take away from the application as such. Okay, so now we're at our final point. Okay, this one's tying it together. As, as you probably gather, this is, this is a, a tricky portion of scripture and uh, we've tried to, to unpack what's going on in the text, but we know we can't leave it at that. We need, we need to think about how this comes home for us. And so that's what I want to try to do now. So we've, we've wound through this passage to see Paul's main point is that Christians should keep apostolic traditions, particularly in regard to the way husbands and wives relate. That had particular applications, specific in Corinth, but how does it look now? What do we do with it? Paul's main objective was proper order among Christians, specifically in the family. He, he focused this point in a few ways. He commended the traditions first. First, he commended the traditions. He exhorted them to, rem- to mind and commended them for minding the apostolic instruction. So, we have the scriptures to guide us. That's one thing we take away from this. Now, that one's not going to be shocking to anybody here. So what else? Now, this one I think does perhaps bring a new, uh, at least not often considered perspective. So the second thing is that Paul argued from nature. Right? Look at verses 14 and 15. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. His point was that some things, when he says, doesn't nature teach you? Isn't it obvious that nature teaches you? His point was that some things have 
self-evident fittingness. But that gets tricky. Because the next verse says, verse 16, the very next verse says that not all of the churches observe this same custom. So what do we do with that? Well, we see that various cultures apply the principles of nature differently. Right? What, what conservative dress is in one place is not necessarily conservative dress in another place, but nature itself says, look, you should dress appropriately, especially as you practice your faith. Okay, so in Corinth, long hair was characteristically feminine. So nature thereby entailed men not adopt women's practices. Our culture may not see long hair as feminine, but nature still requires men not to adopt women's practices. Distinction between sexes, however, that is expressed in a culture. However, however we express our the differences between the sex and the culture, that needs to be minded. Paul's concern is specifically focused in marriage, though. Right? This should be about husbands and wives all the way through. So, so now let's try to get more practical at last. How do we work this out? Verse 2 and 3's principle is that men are the head of the family. Right? That, that certainly means that men take responsibility for their families. Nature entails that we not invert that creation and that apostolic teaching. We then give thought, right, that we, we need to think about what our families look like, considering also the strengths that husbands and wives have together and, and genuinely together, knowing that men need to take responsibility to get these conversations happening and that families be intentional about demonstrating a, a husband's leadership and application in the family's religious life. That's what's happening there, right? Praying and prophesying. So it's a fairly focused exhortation about taking the lead in a family's religious life. After all, Paul's application is right there about these two things focused on our demonstration of our faith. So I think we see a call for husbands and fathers to be purposeful in organizing the spiritual welfare of our families. Taking the lead in spiritual investment and growth in our families. Now, the only concrete action that I I really want to... Because the main thing that I want to get at here and and leave you with is that you think about this in your families. Because I think that that's partly what this is about. Doesn't Paul himself say, judge for yourselves? Part of his exhortation, verse 12. The only, 
concrete thing that I, I kind of want to push forward um, is that I hope men won't be passive uh, in this in this issue. We can't silently hope that our families just spontaneously grow spiritually. That's what's going on there, right? We we have to. Somebody has to take responsibility to start discussions, prompt prayer, which this passage includes both husband and wife praying. So it's not about him just doing all the praying. It's about trying to motivate spiritual good as both people engage in spiritual activity. Now, yeah, I don't want to leave our application one-sided. So we see, on the other hand, that wives were praying and prophesying. So what that tells us is the biblical view of headship does not sideline women. It doesn't sideline women, but prompts their spiritual involvement. Although there is real place for headship, we see in this passage that husbands and wives are taking on the same task in their walk with Christ. So within our marriages, and according to our culture's customs that express modesty and order, we are all still thoroughly involved. Scripture exhorts men to present themselves fitting to their role, but also women to to modesty according to the cultural terms, and, and both to spiritual involvement and support for one another. Now lastly, so we've seen uh, Paul's argument from Scripture, the apostolic traditions, he commended that to them. We've seen Paul argue from nature. And lastly, we see that he frames his point within the church's custom. And I think this is an interesting one. We'll probably come back to this as we get into the next section too. What we see here as... you know. You could translate the churches, we have no practice, nor the churches of God. We have no custom. It means the same. I mean, that's what a custom is, right? A practice. But, but that suggests to us that there is a place, as qualified as we might need it to be, for church tradition. Kind of doing things the cer- certain way because they're, they're fitting for us in our time, place, and culture. Now, certainly tradition is not a separate way of receiving revelation from God, distinct from the Scripture. That's not how we consider tradition as Protestants. But tradition is a helpful guide within the church's understanding of Scripture. Right? That's a, The best sense of tradition is reading the Bible together with the church of all ages and taking the best insights that we can glean there. We see the exhortation in this not to change the church, just to change it. Now let's think about that a bit more for a second. Paul Paul recognized that not every church had the same practices, even to support the same principles. But churches have customs for good reasons. Okay, so if a, 
If a custom no longer facilitates the apostolic tradition, well, we change it. If something, you know, we don't hang on to a custom that well applies a biblical principle to a culture, we don't keep that. If the culture's changed, then it no longer facilitates applying the principle well. But on the other hand, right, we, we should not change church custom simply to have something new and innovative. Right? The church growth movement redesigned church to be about what we want, making, making it so that church necessarily and continually changes because it's about giving the people what they want, giving the people what entices them. That's not how we should think about church. We can't make, we can't make church timeless, right? Things change. If we need, within the qualified framework, we have to change with it. Okay, that's, that's why we're not reading the Bible in Latin. We're reading the Bible in English, right? If we spoke Latin, if we spoke some other language, we should read that way. But we, we need to yet, despite, you know, that we, we need to listen to the past. We should mind the order of our church's community and not seek, I think this is very clear in this text, we should, we shouldn't seek to upset that order and the way we do things just to, just to change things. Things need changing, that's fine, have a good discussion about it. Well, let's not change it just to change it. Now, so we've got three ways of thinking about that. We've got some, some ways of considering what this means for our families. And yet we are thankful. Amidst all the moving parts of this text, right, and all of the things going on and things to keep discussing and unpacking, we're thankful that the ultimate, the, one of the crystal clear statements here is that Christ is our head and is the loving husband of his church. In, in Christ's office as prophet, he delivers God's truth to us, as our catechism says, so that we might know our salvation. He gave himself that we might be free from the law's curse. Whatever, whatever you think about these coverings in 1 Corinthians 11, take or leave what I've said. Whatever you think about these coverings, we are glad that Christ's death provided the ultimate covering for our sin that we might be blameless in God's sight and accepted in the court of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we live in humble reliance on your spirit that sometimes your word is difficult, sometimes preaching doesn't make it any clearer, but we are thankful that it is nonetheless profitable for us to consider your scripture. And we pray that you would bring these things home to us. Whatever you have brought to individual 
this evening. We pray that you would help that to cause them to treasure Christ more and to see the way forward in their families and living out their faith. And we pray we do hold on to Christ as our head who has covered our sin and that that would be the refreshing reality that keeps us moving in the week ahead. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.